All right, good morning, 11 a.m. Good morning. Same thing happened in the first service. I said, good morning, 9 a.m. This side said, good morning. And this side said almost nothing. So um, I'm going to preach to this side of the room primarily this morning. Would you open up your Bibles to the book of John chapter 3? If I have not met you, my name is Michael Fueling, the lead pastor here of the joy to open up God's word with you. Uh, Before we jump into John 3, we need to take some time and I want to prepare our mind and our heart to enter into this text. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start off this sermon in a way that risks upsetting some of you in the room. In fact, uh, it's possible that there are going to be some of you who aren't just kind of uneasy, but you might find maybe deep in your soul you're pretty irritated or you are angry. And if you find yourself, especially in the first like 10 minutes of this message, if you find yourself irritated, I want you to know I'm okay with it. We're okay with it. But here's my question for you. My question is, why are you irritated? Now, some of you, you're going to hear this, and you're going to go, awesome, wonderful. But there's going to be some of you in the room, you are not going to be comfortable. So if you are irritated, why? Maybe it's because of my tone. And I, I'm trying to, I have no anger inside of me. There's nothing like in my heart that wants to yell at you or beat you over the head with something. And, but maybe it's my tone, and if that's the case, I want to own that and apologize because um, I love you and I want you to know God and to love him and to grow in him. So I hope it's not my tone, but if that's the case. But maybe, maybe I've struck a nerve or an insecurity. It's possible. Maybe I'm shining light on something that you really would rather keep hidden. Maybe I'm shining a light on something in the presence of your kids or people you want to respect you, and and maybe you're concerned, right, that they're going to think differently of you after this section. Um, So whatever whatever the emotion is, I just want to say I'm fine with it. But what I want you to do is to do kind of the work of why. What, what really is it that's irritating you if that happens? So to set up John chapter 3, what we need to do is discuss the difference between a cultural Christian and a true Christian. So first, I want to identify what a cultural Christian is. Um, second, we're going to look at some behaviors, some attitudes that um, usually typically describe a cultural Christian. And then third, we're going to actually look at what a true Christian is. And this is all set up just to get into John 3 so that we can be ready for that. All right, what is a cultural Christian? A cultural Christian is someone who thinks they are a Christian because... Now, we're going to fill in the blank, and I'm going to give you a whole bunch of things that people fill in the blank with right here. They think that they're a Christian because, but if they died today, they would not go to heaven. All right. I might be a cultural Christian, cultural Christian, someone who thinks they're a Christian because I grew up Christian. Like in your brain, I went to church, I grew up because I grew up Christian I must be a true Christian. Here's another one. Because I have fond memories of church. Here's another one. Because I was baptized when I was younger. Maybe, maybe you think you're a Christian because I was a, I was a deacon, I was a treasurer, a leader, maybe even elder at my church. 
I think the most common is I think I'm a Christian because I'm a good person. Uh, somebody, many people think they're Christians because they went on a mission trip when they were younger. Someone uh, is a cultural Christian. Uh, they think they're a Christian because my dad was a pastor or because I went to a Christian school, or because I was confirmed, or because I had my first communion. All right, let's go, let's go even deeper. Let's talk about some of the attitudes and behaviors that would describe a cultural Christian. Uh, you might be a cultural Christian if you made the decision to become a Christian when you were younger, but it made no observable difference in your everyday life. Here's another. You only go to church when you don't have other things going on, which happens to be most of the time, even pre-COVID. Most people in your life, they do not know you are a Christian. If they do, there is no behavior in your life that distinguishes you from the world except you talking about going to church sometimes. For, for some, you might be a cultural Christian if you cannot quickly and easily answer the following question. How do I go to heaven? You might be a cultural Christian if financial generosity has always been erratic, but it primarily revolves around tax write-offs. You might be a cultural Christian if serving your church and your community are usually erratic and rare, but, but if you do, you prefer to subtly brag about it to your workers and your neighbors and extra bounty points if you put it on Facebook. You might be a cultural Christian if reading the Bible or generally pursuing spiritual growth has never been super interesting to you. You might be a cultural Christian if you believe the Bible has errors, it's a bit outdated, you prefer to believe popular ideas about moral issues, particularly gender and sexuality. The Bible is out of date. You might be a cultural Christian. If you're being honest, you for the life of you do not understand why missionaries risk everything and take their family to foreign countries with the possibility of death. You think they're idiots if you're really being honest. You might be a cultural Christian if your life passion has never been Jesus, but it has always been work or hobbies. Last two, you ready? You might be a cultural Christian if you willingly date non-Christians because faith isn't your highest priority in your marriage. You might be a cultural Christian if you have very few, if any, Christian friends because faith is not a high priority in close friendships. Okay, so the reason I say might be is because it's possible if this list sort of begins to describe you, you might be a cultural Christian. But there's another actually option here, and that is if this list describes you, you might actually be a true Christian, but you may be completely untaught. Like it is really, really common. I will meet somebody who comes to Christ, and maybe they even came to Christ years before but they were never in a church that even rarely opened up the Bible, taught about difficult things. It was mostly self-help self and how to get rich or something of the sorts. 
And then when they come to a church that teaches the Bible, they're like, I had no idea that was in there. I have been a Christian for years. Nobody's ever told me this kind of stuff. But then when they start to hear the word of God taught in context, they're like, their hearts come alive. And what they realize is like, wow, if the Bible is true, I kind of haven't been told the whole story. So they actually, they shift what they believe and start believing in what the Bible teaches. And so it's really possible, actually, that as I read the list, some of you were like, uh-oh, I think that, that is me. It might be that you're a true Christian, but you are undiscipled and immature. And I just want to tell you that if you are a brand new Christian, right, there is no shame in being immature. If you ever look at a seven-year-old and you get upset with them because they're not acting like an adult, and, that, and it's similar with Christian growth as well. When you come to Christ, you're a spiritual infant or baby, and it takes time to grow through a, lot of, through a lot of things. And so we're patient with that process. And so maybe you're in the middle of the process, and as you're hearing this, you're like, oh, there's some of the things in there that I need to go back and talk to somebody and figure out what's really, really going on. But let's go back to the cultural Christianity for a moment. It's possible that you're a cultural Christian. And here's what I know. In America, really anywhere in the world, where I stand in front of a group of people, statistically, there's going to be a bunch of cultural Christians, and they have no idea whatsoever. Like Nobody ever woke up and said, I'm going to be a fake Christian. I'm going to convince myself that I'm going to go to heaven, but I'm really not. Like That's not how cultural Christians think. So even if you're here and you think I'm like kind of coming down hard on you, that is not my intention. Actually, what I want to do is put a mirror up to it because cultural Christianity is devastating and dangerous. And I need you to just hear me. I'm going to be very blunt. I try not to mince words with you ever. The danger of cultural Christianity is that if you die as a cultural Christian, you go to hell. And that's not me saying that. That would be Jesus. So he, there's actually a text of scripture in the book of Matthew chapter 7. And I'll read it for you. I want you to just hear this because before there were cultural Christians, there were cultural Jews. And, and here's what Jesus is saying to a bunch of Jews who are Jew by culture only, but not because they have trusted in Jesus. Here's what he says. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Like there are people who are like, Jesus, like Jesus, I believe. And he, here's what he says. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what's interesting in the book of Matthew, the one who does the will of his Father is always the one who believes. Now, just hold that word in your head because we're going to come back to that multiple times in John 3. Verse 22, on that day, this is the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And if you ask them, if you died today, would you go to heaven? All of those people would have said, absolutely. The problem is they're cultural Jews or cultural Christians in our context now. And Jesus says this in verse 23, then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here's the deal. If this was a possibility for anyone in this room and I said nothing, I'd be a terrible pastor. And if Jesus knew this was a possibility for the Jews and he never warned them that there's a whole group of you that you believe you're going to heaven because of the family you were born into or the blood that courses through your veins and he never said a word to them, he would be a terrible Messiah. But God in his grace is putting this teaching out for us so that we can step back and, and evaluate and say, am, am I actually a real Christian? Like the kind of Christian that if I died today that I know my sins are forgiven and I would go to heaven. Now let's, let's shift gears. Um, if, if I just ended the sermon here and walked out, you should be rightly frustrated. Let's talk about what a true Christian is. 
A true Christian is someone who has zero reliance on, there's another fill in the blank, we'll fill that in in a moment, for salvation, but has personally and sincerely apologized to God for their sin and professed faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. A true Christian, someone who has zero reliance on, and let me fill in the blank with a handful of these, uh, most obvious good works for salvation. A true Christian, when they die, if Jesus came up to them in heaven and said, how did you get in here? Never will there be a person in heaven who looks at you and says, I was good enough. Never. It will never happen. Every person in heaven will tell you, I am here by the grace and the mercy of God. I believed in Jesus Christ and God kept his word. Anybody who believes in Jesus' death and resurrection shall be forgiven and saved. That is the only reason I am here. A true Christian is someone who has zero reliance on family heritage for salvation. If you're a true Christian, this might actually sound nuts to you, but um, I, I have the joy of talking with a whole bunch of people about faith, and, and the amount of people who believe they are true Christians because their mother, their father, their grandma, or their grandpa were Christians is nuts. What's, what's particularly crazy is, is how many people believe that because their mom or their dad were pastors or religious leaders, that their faith is secure as if salvation and forgiveness is inherited, which it never is. A true Christian is someone who has zero reliance on past ministry serving or generosity for salvation. Like there are some people who look back and say, yeah, but I did this thing. I was generous here. Like I changed this family's life. Some of you, you might be like, I literally changed the course of the world in this particular area. I did good. How could God send somebody to hell who does this much good for the world or who is this generous? Um, for younger people, I find this to be um, particularly um, a trap, that if you're younger and your friends are Christians, that you believe that you're a true Christian because you're in the orbit of other true Christians and you may go to youth group or different things. Uh, a true Christian is never going to rely on their church attendance for salvation. Going to church does not make you a Christian. It does not earn you forgiveness of sins at all. Lastly, but not least, a true Christian is someone who has zero reliances on sacraments or ordinances like communion or baptism for the forgiveness of their sins. A true Christian has personally and sincerely apologized to God for their sin and professed faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for their sin on their behalf. Now, <clears throat> if you're here and you're a true Christian, do you still struggle with sin? Everybody, the answer is absolutely. This is not about good people versus better people. This is not, I mean, there are some cultural Christians who are way nicer than some true Christians that I know, for being honest. But their niceness does not get them into heaven the only thing that gets you forgiveness of sins and the confidence of eternal life is that you have personally and sincerely apologized to God for your sin against him. And you have declared that you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins and raised again from the dead. That's it. And our, our desire is that you would know for certain that when you die, your eternity is secure 
not because of anything you did, but because of who Christ is and what he has done for you. So that's the context I want to set. Now turn with me, John chapter 3, verse 1. We're going to meet a really religious man. His name's Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was not a cultural Christian, but Nicodemus was a cultural Jew. And Nicodemus fell into the trap that so many of the Jewish people fell into. They believed their entrance into the kingdom of God was secure because of the blood that coursed through their veins, because of their sacraments, if you will. They circumcised their boys, and because they did that, if you were a boy who was circumcised, for sure you were good. And because they were better than most people. They obeyed God, generally speaking. And so Nicodemus believes, I'm a Jew, I have the right family heritage, I'm a good guy, I do good works, I'm fine. He has zero concept that he might not go to heaven when he dies. And so there, there are some people in the, in the room right now, you're like, you're actually kind of irritated at me, right? Because I'm, I'm kind of poking. You might actually be a cultural Christian. I have no, again, condemnation for you, I love you. I want you to know Jesus and apologize to him and ask him to save you. So we're on, we, I wanna be on your team here. But you're, you might be like Nicodemus where you came to church and you're like, look at me, I'm at church. This is great. I feel good. And the pastor gets up and he says some things you're like, oh no, I might not be a real Christian. And you're going to be tempted to get mad at me. I'm not the issue. I want you to look at Jesus. I'm just a mediator of the message. Get me out of the way. Don't get upset about the way I dress or the way I look. Like your brain and your, your default mechanism to find anything you can to get upset with me so you don't have to deal with yourself. I'm not your problem. When you die, you don't face me. You face Jesus. And I just want to connect you to him. That is, that's my desire in this moment. But Nicodemus is, is probably in a similar situation to most cultural Christians in this room. Uh, he's probably a little confused at first. And it's going to take him some time. He's got to soak in what Jesus is saying. And it's going to take him a while to get it. All right, John chapter 3, verse 1. Now, there is a man of the Pharisees. His name is Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. <clears throat> this man came to Jesus by night, and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What do we know that we know about Nicodemus so far? By education, Nicodemus has mastered the scriptures. He has a functional PhD or multiple PhDs in rabbinic law, Torah literature, prophetic literature, the Old Testament in general, a history of Judaism. The dude is a master. He is smarter than probably all of us in this room when it comes to anything Old Testament. He's not just a Pharisee. He is a ruler, a leader of the Pharisees. So not only have the other Pharisees, the smartest people in Israel, charged with knowing, reading, interpreting, and applying Old Testament law, they have looked at him and elevated him in position. This guy is the man. He has power. He has authority. And he's looking at Jesus, and he is very curious. Uh, we see that Nicodemus even has some level of respect for Jesus. So the word rabbi, it means teacher, but it's an actual official word of respect for somebody. And, and not just anybody can get up and just say, I'm a rabbi. It's actually when a Pharisee, when a ruler of the Israelites looks at you and gives you this title, this is really affirming. And what Nicodemus is saying is there's something about you that you deserve the title rabbi. There's a respect from Nicodemus to Jesus. But here's the last thing we know. Somehow Nicodemus sees association with Jesus as probably a little bit dangerous. So he comes to him by night. And if we're being honest, we could probably understand why. Because do you remember like just 
in the last chapter, Jesus goes into the temple on like the holiest week of the year, and then he turns over the tables and kicks everybody out, so makes a, a whip of cords and starts hitting animals, and it's kind of weird. Like you could understand that probably the Pharisees or the religious leaders probably are starting to hear about this Jesus guy, and they're not thinking too highly of him. But Nicodemus is watching, and he's like, you are different. The power of God rests on you. And Nicodemus is trying to figure this out. And in the conversation, I want you to get this. Nicodemus is affirming Jesus. He's curious. Now, if someone says to you, I think you might be from God, typically your answer might be, thank you. Not with Jesus. You're going to notice a pattern with Jesus. You ask a question and he answers with what feels like complete nonsense. Jesus, what year is it? Pi. What? What? Je Jesus, what's my name? The kingdom of God. What? That's not the question I answered. Like, and he's a master at this. And so I want you to watch what Jesus does. He just gets affirmed. Jesus' answer to him is, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That has nothing to do with what he just said. Like, like, I'm trying to get at this thing. Who are you? And he's like, nope, sorry. Unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus is doing. He is not answering the question that Nicodemus is trying to ask. He is answering the question Nicodemus should be asking. And the question Nicodemus should be asking is, how can I be a part of and get into the kingdom of God? Or let me paraphrase this for an American how can I know that I know that when I die, I will be in heaven with you forever? Here's the problem. Cultural Jews and cultural Christians, they don't know to ask that question because they assume they already have entrance based on pedigree. My family was Christians. I'm Jewish by blood. I'm Christian by heritage, whatever. I'm a good person. Fill in the blank. All the things we listed earlier. Cultural Christians and cultural Jews have no idea how to ask this question because they've already convinced themselves that they will be in heaven Understandably, Nicodemus is very confused, especially about the born-again comment. So Nicodemus denses the doornail. He says in verse 4, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born at this time? If Jesus is like, for the love of God. But this is so normal. Jesus says truth. There's a spiritual dimension to it. And cultural Jews and cultural Christians, it goes whoop right over their head. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Now, born of water um, seems to have like an initial, very literal interpretation. But then with Jesus, there's also like a, a sub-interpretation, a more spiritual interpretation. And of course, Nicodemus, dense as he is, uh, he automatically interprets this as being born of a woman. So ladies, before you gave birth, your water broke. And so after the water comes what? Comes the baby inevitably. And so this is initially what goes through his brain. There's another layer to this. Can we, so let's just remind ourselves, right? We're in John chapter 3 and John chapter 1 and 2. Um, who's the guy that keeps showing up baptizing people? His name's John the Baptist. And so this weird thing is happening over by the Jordan River. A bunch of Jews are getting baptized, but you shouldn't get baptized. 
Because the kind of rite they were doing was something that you would do if you were a Gentile or a non-Jew. And you decided that Yahweh was the one true God, and so you were going to convert to the true religion, Judaism. So here's what you would do. You, as a Gentile, would get baptized, and then you'd become a part of the people of God. And so John is sitting there, he's baptizing all these Jews. Well, Jews should get baptized. Here's what they're saying when they get baptized. All these Jews are realizing, oh no, we're part of the physical people of God, but we're not part of the spiritual people of God. And we want to be part of both. And the only way to become part of the spiritual people of God is to repent of our sins. And the way they showed repentance was through baptism. But it wasn't the water. It was never the water. When they repented of their sins and, and professed faith in God, that was when they were saved. And so the, the subtext of what Jesus is saying here is you, you need to be born of water, which means all that stuff that baptism symbolizes, you might be a Jew physically, now you need to become a Jew spiritually. What's happening over there at the Jordan River, that's where the real stuff's happening. It's not sitting here in the temple. That's not where the real stuff is. You think because you're close to proximity to the temple, you're okay. Go, go over to the Jordan River to that crazy guy, John the Baptist, who's baptizing people. And then when you were baptized, uh, when, you are, when you are a repent uh, of your sin, you are then born spiritually. And all of this is like so confusing for Nicodemus. He has no category that he already isn't born spiritually. And in fact, he probably doesn't even think in terms of being born spiritually. And Jesus is like, yeah, you got to start thinking in these terms because they're pretty important. And clearly, Nicodemus has a shocked look on his face because look what happens in verse 7. He says, don't marvel what I said to you. Quote, you must be born again. Like, is this a shock to you? You've got multiple PhDs in Old Testament. Read the book of Ezekiel. Read all the teaching of the New Covenant. Like, if you can't figure out that you need to be born again, then you're not paying attention to the Bible you're reading. And then he, and then he gets really, really confusing. I, I just think this is hilarious. Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. Yeah. And you hear it sound. Yeah. But you, <laughs> but you do not know where it comes or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. What? Like, at some level, if you're Nicodemus, you are just utterly confused. And, and here's what I think is happening. I think he's saying, listen, y y you think the Holy Spirit is moving here because you're close to the temple? Actually, the wind of the Spirit's blowing over by the Jordan River where people are repenting of their sins. That's where the, that's where the wind is blowing. And the Spirit can transform lives there or here or anywhere he wants. But I'm telling you right now, you need to go over there. Because over there represents everything you need to be born again spiritually. Nicodemus said to him in verse 9, how can these things be? Doesn't understand. Jesus answers him, are you, a teach are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Bro, you've been reading the book. It's, I'm literally just telling you what it says. And you don't get this yet? And, and guys, it is utterly exhausting how many people know the Bible and don't understand it. Like the amount of prosperity preachers who get up and they read and teach and they are blind to what is right in front of them because their agenda isn't to know God but to extort you. The amount of people who preach because they have political agendas and they don't really want to know what the text says and what God is revealing about his mind and his heart and they have all these political agendas so that just, this is a conduit to get to that and they miss the entire thing. God is revealing himself in his word to you personally. But if you come to this with an agenda other than to know him, you're gonna miss. You're gonna miss, miss what's right here. 
And if you're too busy being irritated at what Jesus says because you don't like it, you're going to miss. This is why when we, when we open the word of God, when we sit in a sermon, we're like, God, would you just show me what your word says in its context about who you are and what's going on? I want to know you. And if your word says it, I want to obey it. But Nicodemus is blind. Verse 11, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. And again, what he's acknowledging to Nicodemus is you can't know what you don't know. And the spiritual realities underneath the text, you've missed all of them. And he says this, we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. Jesus is literally from God and he sees into Nicodemus's heart and he sees that Nicodemus is acknowledging that God is doing something through Jesus, but does not yet believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of Man. And then things get even a little bit more weird. So here it goes. Verse 12, Jesus says, if I told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. I have no idea if Nicodemus knows what Jesus is talking about at this point. I am confident Nicodemus is somewhat confused. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, listen, I'm telling you here on earth how people are born again. I'm telling you what's happening over the Jordan River. I'm telling you that there's a whole bunch of Jews who on the surface, they're realizing that they're physical Jews and they're like, oh no, I'm not a spiritual Jew. I'm explaining to you earthly things. You're dense as a doornail. You don't get that. I'm the son of man. I literally was in heaven and now I've come to earth. I could tell you all the crazy things happening up there, but if you won't even believe me about basic things here, why would you believe me about eternal heavenly things that would blow your mind if you just asked? So Jesus is going to give Nicodemus an illustration he would understand. He's going to go into the book of Numbers, into the Torah. He's going to pull out this really, really weird, strange story that probably for the Jews, they're all like, why is Numbers chapter 21 in the Old Testament? I'm going to read it to you because I think it's really entertaining. And, uh, and then here's what he says to Nicodemus to help Nicodemus understand Jesus. It says this, they, the Israelites, set out by way to the Red Sea. They're leaving Egypt. They're leaving slavery. God is freeing them. They're excited. They're leaving to go to the promised land. It says this, that to go around the land of Edom, because they'll kill them in Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And they spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and there's no water. And we loathe this worthless food. It's like you're spoiled kids when you're taking them on vacation in the car and the whole way they're like, it's so long, my legs are cramped, I don't want to eat there. I'm like, we just pay money for you to go on vacation, smile. And Jesus is understandably mad, as you would be. <laughs> then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people. I'm sorry, it's not funny, but it is. <laughs> so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and they said, we have sinned for we have spoken against the Lord and you pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. Like guys, so Moses goes and prays. And I imagine, again, I have a quite feisty imagination. Apparently Moses is like, so God, they're pretty annoying. Probably you should stop killing them if you want. These people, they can die. Like, but if we could slow the process down a little bit, I think it would help everybody just chill out a little bit. So the Lord said to Moses, fine, here's the solution. Make a fiery serpent, set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on a pole, and if a, serp and if a serpent bit anybody, 
He would look at the bronze serpent and live. Story over. Isn't that weird? If you're just reading through the book of Numbers and this happens, you're like, a bronze serpent. What What does this even mean? Let's go back to John 3, verse 14. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Nicodemus, you know that random story that nobody really knew what to do with? It was about me. And sin, it, 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 it's deadly. People are dying because of it. And God has given one antidote, and it's the Son of Man. Now, does Nicodemus understand yet that Jesus is the Son of Man? I think he does. And so what Jesus is going to do next is he is going to beat one singular message into their brain. Verse 15, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you know, apparently you've heard this verse before, but I want you to notice it's in the context of other verses, and there's an emphasis here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Do you see a theme here? Why do people repeat themselves? They repeat themselves because they don't believe the other person is understanding what they're saying. So let me reread this to you how I read it. Nicodemus, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Nicodemus, do you get it? No. Okay, let me try it again. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. How about now? Do you get it? No. Okay, let me try this again. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Nicodemus, do you get it yet? Not at all. Completely confused. Okay, let's try this again. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Nicodemus, are we on the same page yet? I have no idea what you're talking about, Jesus. Cultural Judaism and cultural Christianity are excruciating because they die miserably slow deaths. Like your whole heart and mind is wired like, like it's as if a virus has been con- like contaminating you and it is designed to protect itself at all costs. So here's what happens. Like somebody actually confronts your cultural Judaism or your cultural Christianity and you're like, oh, and then you immediately get mad or frustrated or irritated as a defense mechanism. Forget about all that. Stop it. Stop it. Don't do that. Those are all just distractions so that your heart, so your cultural Christianity is trying to protect itself. It's trying to build a fortress around itself. Now watch, watch the grave threat that Jesus is trying to save Nicodemus from. And I want to I show you the same text, but I want to highlight just different words. You notice in verse 16, he's the word perish. Your soul doesn't need to perish if you believe in Jesus. Verse 17 condemned. Verse 18, condemned is used twice. And here's what Jesus is doing. He is not coming to be this condemning voice, you terrible person, I can't believe you. He is literally telling him, you are a cultural Jew. You will perish. Your soul is condemned unless you believe in the Son of Man. 
It's as simple as this. And everything inside of Nicodemus is wired to not understand it, to push Jesus away and to be defensive. How can this be? This doesn't make any sense. And Jesus just breaks it down. He's like, you got to believe in me. That's what it takes. And I'm not telling you you're condemned because I'm trying to be mean. I'm not telling you that you're going to perish because I'm, I'm a jerk. I'm telling it to you because if I didn't tell you, you literally would think I'm the worst savior on the planet and I would be. So when your pastor or your parent or your friend says something hard about the eternal reality of the soul, nobody, I mean, there's a few of you, I'm sure. I just have not met many people who are like, yeah, I really want to offend them and make them really mad at me and lose the friendship and then have them tell all people in my life that I'm a judgmental jerk. I don't know anybody who thinks like that, really. If someone has a hard conversation with you about the state of your soul, that's a real friend. That's somebody who actually is like, Honestly, that's a keeper. But recognize cultural Christianity is, de is designed to make you turn on them. It's a, it's a defense mechanism. And we do this all the time. We turn on the people who love us the most to protect the sin inside of us. I just don't think we need to do that. I want to share with you two so what's. If you are a cultural Christian, believe. If I guarantee you, if you are a cultural Christian and you're recognizing that, you did not walk into this place thinking, I'm a cultural Christian, and when I die, I'm going to go to hell because I actually don't know Jesus and I don't have the Holy Spirit. I have never met anybody who says that. But as you hear Jesus and as you hear the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, there might just be this sense in you that you're like, I don't know how I missed it, but I missed it. And I have incredible, wonderful, beautiful news for you. The answer is not be better. The answer is tell God you're sorry. You have sinned against him and believe in Jesus Christ's death and resurrection for you and your behalf. And so if you're, if you're here and you maybe have been a cultural Christian for any reason, do you believe that you have sinned against God and you owe him an apology? Do you believe that Jesus is not just God, but your God, that he died on the cross for your sins in your place and that God raised him from, from the dead? If that is you here today, what's left to do is for you to actually tell God you're sorry and ask him to save you. And the promise of God is that anybody who believes in Jesus Christ will be forgiven and saved. Now, are you gonna be a new person on the outside right away? Probably not. Are you still going to have old struggles for the rest of your life? To some degree. Does the Holy Spirit change people quickly? Sometimes. Sometimes you grow fast and then you plateau for a year. And then you grow fast and you plateau for five years. Like uh, the Spirit is like the wind. He blows wherever he wants. I don't understand him. But here's what I can tell you. He will give you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is obsessive about making you more like Jesus. Slow, steady, intentionally, from the very foundations up, forming you into the image of Jesus. Just like when a baby grows, a baby is born and it needs to be developed and its mother nurtures it and cares for it, so is a brand new Christian. And so you take time and you have patience and you gotta work through a lot of questions and that's good. You have to work through theological questions and social questions and we take all of these ideas and these things that we're wrestling through and we bring them to the Bible and we say, God, what, is, what do you say about it? Because you have revealed your mind and your heart on these matters and I wanna learn that. But that's a process and that takes, that takes time. But if you're a cultural Christian, my one encouragement for you is belief. 
And if Jesus were here, he'd probably have a really confusing conversation with you and then he would leave it like this. You gotta believe in me. You gotta believe that you're a sinner. Believe I died on the cross for your sins. Believe I rose from the dead. My second so what is for um, those of you in the room who are true Christians, like you know for sure if you die, you're gonna go to heaven. In fact, as you were reading some of this, uh, as I was reading about cultural Christianity, um, you remember a time when you were actually pretty on fire for the Lord. And there could have been some things in your life. It might have been a trauma. It might have been um, some really just discouraging things that happened. It might have been an ongoing physical sickness. And you, just your general motivation in life, let alone spiritually, has just been really a challenge. And even as I read it, you realized how far away you've gotten from being near to Jesus. And I want to just give you one great encouragement, and it is this. Repent. Now, repent is a weighty word. I think it has like a, almost like an angry vibe in English vernacular, but I don't think it needs to. To re- repent means to change direction. I'm going one way, I'm gonna take a 180 and I'm gonna go the other direction. And it's a change of your mind. You no longer let the world determine what is true and real. You actually take your thoughts back to the Bible and you say, in its context, what is true and real? You turn your heart back to the Lord and you start talking to him again and you start engaging with him again. You know, because you used to do it. It's a change of lifestyle. In fact, uh, if, honestly, if we were to sit down with almost all of you, and this is my common experience, if I sit down with somebody who's acting like a cultural Christian but they're a true Christian, I don't actually need to tell them what to do because the Holy Spirit can be like a nag and is like, you know what to do. You know what to do. You know what to do. There are probably one or two or three huge decisions in your life that you already know what it means to repent of and that's where you're gonna start because the Holy Spirit has sort of been like whispering them to you and then sometimes yelling at you and you're like, Ugh, be quiet, stop talking to me. You probably already know your next step. So I could plot out 500 of them but I think you already know if you're a true Christian. And maybe you just need some help. Maybe you need somebody to look at you and say, yeah, that's really understandable and let's walk together and figure it out. So find somebody who's spiritually mature in your life. Maybe sit down with a pastor and say, would you help me? I know I'm a real Christian, but doggone it, like honestly, the last couple of years have been really hard and I don't think anybody in my life really knows that I'm a follower of Christ, but I want them to. But I also don't want to become a weirdo. So would you help me? <laughs> would you help me pursue Christ in a way that, that is compelling to people who don't know Jesus. Now, Village Church, um, at the end of most services, we celebrate communion, and I think this is a wonderful moment to stop and to say, are you a cultural Christian? Do you want to change that? And if today you, you want to make the decision to apologize to God and to trust in Christ, when we partake of communion, I want to encourage you to do that because when you partake of communion, You're literally making a proclamation. I have sinned against you. I am sorry. And I am relying solely on the blood of Jesus for my salvation. Maybe you are here and you're like, listen, I'm not a Christian. I'm not even a cultural Christian. I'm not buying into what you're selling. Like I got dragged here. I was a little curious. Maybe that's why I came. My mom and dad forced me to be here. I'm here for my my brother or sister. You do not need to partake of communion. In fact, I would encourage you, don't be a liar and partake of communion. Nobody needs you to do it. Like if you do not believe that you are a sinner and that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for your sins and was raised again from the dead, don't partake of communion. Nobody will judge you or look down on you. Some of you are like, this is my first Sunday here. I am a true Christian. I don't know the rules on communion. I don't care where you've been to church, where you go to church. If you're here and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a true Christian, please join us because we are one body and that is in Jesus, not Village Church.
Those of you who are regular attendees, you are just, you're true believers here. You're part of Village Church. Like, this is normal for you. I just want to encourage you. We have a time of silence and talk to God and thank him that all of your salvation and everything in your life that has happened as a result of you trusting in Christ is 100% of him and he gets all the glory for it. And I think in this time for you just to stop and thank him and be filled with unbelievable gratitude that some day before this, he showed you that you were a cultural Christian or non-Christian at best and, and he showed you the good news of what he did for you in a way that your heart and mind understood it and he saved you. And so we're gonna celebrate communion here and uh, here's how we do it. It's very simple. Uh, we're gonna have a ton of silence and uh, when that's done, we're gonna sing together. Um, during the silence of the song, I wanna encourage you, if you did not get elements on the way in, they're at the column to my right, also the column to my left and between the double doors. Uh, when you get those, come back to your seat and if you would hold onto them until the end of the song, we're gonna partake together. And when we partake together, this is a symbol of our unity in Jesus, the most important person in our life and what binds us together. So let's have a time of silence and reflection alone.